Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Drew. Hello. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be talking about worker cooperatives. And uh, Drew is here um, because they know something, a, a thing or two about them, don't you, Drew? Um, if you wouldn't mind just uh, laying out to our listeners um, your experience with co-ops and um, why you're here today. Sure. Um, well, currently I am working on starting up a new worker cooperative in Rochester called Anyone's Cafe and Bakery. I have had other experience in the past, mostly in advocacy around, around worker co-ops, um, but this is the, yeah, the cafe is probably the strongest project I've been involved in and the most successful so far um, before we've even opened up. So I'm really excited about being able to work in an environment like this and hope that we can make sure that it's not just a single solitary co-op in Rochester and that we can, let's say, like be a seed for a, a network of co-ops um, providing good living wage jobs to all members of our, our community. I, I guess the first question I have is uh, what, what led to the creation of this co-op? Cause it didn't just come from nowhere. It wasn't, you know, just uh, out of a vacuum. Uh, what was it that resulted in this co-op being formed? And, you know, how, how did you all come together to say, we want to start a cafe? Yep. So we were actually all working at Misfit Donuts together. And we, through a series of events, um, decided to unionize. Um, unionization in the food service industry is obviously something that's hasn't happened much in the past, but is clearly ramping up. We, we were unionized. We actually developed our letter of intent from the, the letter that the Starbucks workers in Buffalo had, had issued originally. Um, and they, yeah, we were like, this is a really great message. Um, we want to do this here. Uh, Misfit is obviously, was obviously a small business rather than a big corporation, but Workers deserve unions wherever they work. And it doesn't matter whether you're a small business, mom and pop shop, um, or a big multinational corporation. All workers deserve a union and, and, and a voice in the, in the work that they do. So we developed the union. Um, and then, unfortunately, uh, the owner of the business decided to shut down. We had actually, we had already made contact um, with the co-op developers that we're working with. Um, there's an organization called Cooperation Buffalo. So we were kind of working on a dual track. Um, we had the idea that there, that the, the shop might be closing down and we wanted to keep the, we wanted to keep it open. Uh, so we, while we were unionizing, we were also talking about to the folks in Buffalo 
about buying the business um, from the owner. And so when we were told that the shop was shutting down, we went, went right to her and we're like, hey, you don't need to shut down. We want, we want to buy it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's not the way things went. And we actually closed earlier uh, than was originally intended. And then we were out of jobs, <laughs> to put it simply. But within the next, within whether it was she just didn't know understand what we were trying to do or whether she just needed more time, she actually came around by the end of the week. Uh, she was already coming back to us, asking us to buy the, the shop. Uh, so while the uh, while our original our original hope was that we would be there's a um, there's a growing trend to buy existing businesses and convert them to co-ops, and that was the hope that we had. Um, but because of the situation, we instead had to form our own business and. But we are actually going, we actually did buy the equipment and the, the lease from Misfits. So we will be actually operating in the same space as a, a new worker owned business um, that people will be familiar with. And kind of like a, we're not, we're not a pure startup, um, you could say, because we are kind of operating in the same space with the same workers, just a new business. Um, but that's the general, the general trend. And we finally got access to the shop in at the end of January. There's a lot to dig into through, through all that. <laughs> what, what I'm struck by is um, you mentioned at the start wanting this co-op to be sort of a potentially a seed for future co-ops, something that could be something that could lead to more places following this path. And you, you also mentioned the Starbucks in Buffalo serving a bit as your inspiration for unionization at uh, Misfit. And they themselves took inspiration from Spot Coffee, which was one of the first places in the area, the first place in the area to unionize um, in the coffee and food service sector. Um, so we have like physical proof of that working. We have proof of that model having ripple effects and leading chain reactions. Um, you're seeing Starbucks stores across the country now start the unionization process with a bunch of places filing for elections from Boston to Seattle. Um, so I, I think there's reason to believe that something even on the small scale like this can have the sort of big changes that you're talking about. Worker co-ops are not something new. Uh, there's a long history. The modern co-op movement traces itself to the 1800s, but if you really think about it, um, economic democracy, cooperation has a, has a history much longer than that. Um, capitalism is the new thing. <laughs> the cooperation is the way most of, or many societies have organized across the world over over thousands of years. Uh, so there's a long track record. Just a, this is, it's just taking a, a specific form in this case. But in the US uh, there, I was really just really trying to refresh on this. There's about a thousand, 
up to a thousand um, worker cooperatives in the US employing around 10,000 people. There's also worker co-ops around the world um, with the largest being Mildragon in Spain um, and which is a federation of co-ops that employs 80,000 people. And it's actually the seventh largest corporation in Spain. So there's a long history. Co-ops thrive when they work to, when they're working together. Um, there's a few clusters in the US, US centered around like New York City and um, San Francisco. And but just the the more co-ops there are in a community, the stronger we are. Um, so that's there's definitely a definitely a track record for developing networks and hopefully we can see more of that in the future here in Rochester. So we're talking about, there's about, you mentioned about a thousand cooperatives in the United States, um, employing about 10,000 people. Obviously that's kind of a, you know, on average, that's gonna be a small number. I guess my question is, and I, I, I'm asking this because this is a question that I've been asked by people and I don't have the answer because I don't work for, you know, a co-op. I guess what is, if you're asking somebody who's looking at organizing a workplace, who's looking at how to make workplaces better, where, what are the differences between a cooperative model and a union? Because obviously there are two forms of workplace democracy, but I want to get into a little bit of the weeds here as to what each one does. Right. Um, so a union in most cases uh, is operating under a conventional business um, with a boss, a, the owner. Um, basically, capitalist businesses are typically run in a top-down manner. There's a hierarchy. Um, and workers ultimately have no say um, over how over over their lives unless a union gets involved so that they can collectively organize um, and develop a contract with with the boss. Um, in a worker co-op, there are the the businesses in, instead of being owned by the 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 owning class or um, however you want to say that, um, the co-op is that instead actually owned by the workers. So <clears throat> in a small co-op, that would mean um, like well, there's six of us um, right now in the co-op. Uh, so we make the decision, we, we have conversations, um, we vote, um, we try to come to consensus, but we do vote, eventually vote if not necessary um, on how the business is, how the business, like all aspects of the business are being run. Um, and ultimately it is, it is up to us how we, how we work. That does, as you scale up, uh, there is, you do tend to have, as in, as in any organization, the larger an organization becomes, there you do to start developing um, levels of hierarchy. Hierarchy. A worker co-op is no different. Um, obviously, I, I mentioned Mondragon being eighty thousand workers. Um, you can't do. You can't operate democratically. In a general assembly, 
with 80,000 people, um, there has to be some, and different co-ops handle this differently. Um, I'm not fully versed on how WonderCone operates, um, but the larger, basically the larger you got, the more committees you've got, you've got a board. Um, <clears throat> a large co-op will typically ha actually have management. The difference between management in a co-op and management in a, in a more conventional business is that they're accountable to the workers. Um, they in themselves are actually workers and can be recalled or it, they're, they're, yeah, they're accountable to the democratic process. So the workers can fire the management um, if they decide to. Hopefully they'll find other places in the co-op. <laughs> but um, so yeah, so uh, ultimately, whether it's six people or 80,000 people, the processes are developed so that the workers are making the decisions. What, what do you mean you can't do direct democracy with 80,000 people? I saw the Galactic Senate in Star Wars. Clearly it's possible. <laughs> maybe, there's, maybe there's some technological solutions there. Um, I think that Ooh. that's, yeah, I, there, I think there's some, there are definitely ways to expand the number of people that you can engage in direct democracy with. Um, but then you're dealing yeah, with- we're... We're, we're big techno utopians here on punching out. Yeah. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, that's another great piece about co-ops is that if the um, if you do start adopting technology to make your lives easier, um, the workers are the ones that are getting the benefits of the um, automa automation rather than the capitalists. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly struck by you know you you put up this scenario about if management isn't doing its job in a co-op you know the, the workers can recall them the same way as you would a, a democratically elected official um <clears throat> and how you know hopefully they would find another place in the co-op and it seems to me and again i'm also not well-versed in mondragon or any of those other bigger companies but it seems to me that if you did have a situation where somebody isn't doing a good job as a as, as management and is recalled in a cooperative model, then I think that conversation is a little bit different from, you know, the traditional kind of pink slip kind of thing. It seems like having that identification with the people who elected you might help things uh, function in a different way. Of course, we're assuming good faith on every side here, you know, but if, if somebody's just not good at a job that they thought they'd be good at, I think in a, essentially like in a small, in a microcosmic society, that conversation seems like it would be very, very different and, and perhaps more about the goals of the co-op at large than, you know, your boss uh, doing a power move by, by getting rid of you. I, I think there are, you know, a lot of listeners to this show, particularly their ears perk up at everything you said. And, you know, they say, that sounds great. You know, more power for workers, more control over how my job gets done, less having to listen to, you know, the people above me who do not know how to do this job. All that sounds great. But I also think there are people who might say, 
that sounds like a lot of meetings and decision making. <laughs> I don't want to do any of that. Um, what what might you say to someone of that perspective? Uh, you know, what's been your experience with like how much of a burden has this process been really? Um, because we're in startup mode, we are engaging in a lot more meetings than I would hope that we would be doing once we open up. Um, because we have to, we're at home, um, not in the shop, and we have to find time to, to have those conversations. Um, a lot of, I, I think there's definitely, and we're actually, we've had lots of conversations about how to govern. Um, and so we are setting up a, we're setting up our processes and how, like what, what requires certain types of decisions. Um, are, there's a lot, you, you have to trust your coworkers um, and make sure that you're delegating when things need to be delegated. You can easily fetishize uh, meetings and, and it, can, it can get out of control if you're not careful. But that's just the way organizing works. <laughs> you got you got to be got to be aware of when when what actually requires a meeting. Can this just be an email? Um, that's the case in a co-op, and it's a case in a general business. Um, so we are working on making sure that we define what requires uh, a meeting, what requires an email, what requires a personal conversation, um, and. If a lot of that work can be done with personal conversations, that can just be done on the job um, while we're working. Um, obviously, yes. As the as the organization becomes more complex, um, you start you don't necessarily have like the, the level of meetings, but um, it can also you can also structure the, you could also just structure the organization in a way that okay, some people are doing more meetings because that's what their skill is. Um, making, having those conversations is something that some people enjoy and other people don't. Uh, so allowing for that, uh, I think is, is important. Some of that automation, uh, I think is one, one of the things that can help um, reduce meeting times. But yeah, it is, a, it is definitely something that has to be we're, it's a constant, constant conversation about how things are being done, and that is ultimately what, what kind of what the, what the goal is. Like, if you don't like how something's being done, figure out a way to do it better. It's funny. I remember on the emotional labor episode we did some time ago, in which we determined what emotional labor was, and we're right. So you can just go back and listen to it. If you're not sure about the definition of the term, we settled. Comrade Gene Allen talked about how people who are skilled at uh, meetings and, and drawing up white papers and that sort of thing, how they should just all be put into uh, a city like Albany or somewhere like that and just wall it off so they can have their like meetings and, <laughs> and parliaments and all of that stuff. And here you are uh, saying, you know, there's a way to do this that's kind of a win win situation for everybody which is what we're looking for here. You know, if, if that is something that you are good at, there is a place for you in an organization that needs that kind of democratic decision-making that, that needs to make use of all the talents of its various members. And that, that's pretty, um, 
coming from both the labor and cultural and every other background that I come from, that that's a pretty striking advantage of the model that you're discussing. Drew, you mentioned the need to have trust in your coworkers. And I imagine there are a lot of workplaces where that just is not the case. You know, there are a lot of coworkers who you are not going to get along with. Um, but I also imagine that uh, the unionization process that you were already underway with um, at Misfit let a lot, built a lot of that trust. You know, a lot of um, those bonds are formed when you have, when you see that you have a common goal in trying to um, create better conditions for yourselves and others. Um, can you talk a bit about what the issues were that led to the decision to explore unionization in the first place? You've mentioned them, but I don't know if you've given real specifics as to what it was that led you guys to say, we need a union here. In the shop, um, there was definitely a, when it was, again, this is a small business. Our boss had some issues, um, had issues delegating, um, which were, and, and which I think um, was a, was tied to a lack of trust in people's ability to do their jobs. And, So there, so there was a there was a lot of uh, stuff that just wasn't being done right. So it was a, it was a very operational thing. Why why did she need to be working twenty hour days? It's an exaggeration, but it's not much of one um, when she had a shop of workers uh, that could have been doing the jobs, um, and and she did recognize that that was an issue, but she didn't make much effort um, to do so. She actually at one point did ask us for help um, in improving operations. And we kind of thought that the union um, <clears throat> would do that um, partially from, if we were talking about expanding our uh, work hours more clearly defining our roles, uh, which would help her actually offload some of the work that she was doing. Um, but we wanted to we, we wanted to make sure that if we were improving the business, that we got the benefits of that. Um, that we weren't just doing her a favor um, in improving efficiency, um, which would just pad her bottom line. I think that's, you know, as good a reason for unionization as any, you know, not every workplace is different. There are always going to be sort of different rationales at play, different uh, conditions, obviously. And, you know, there are a lot of different things that a union or cooperation in general and the broadest sense of that term can bring about. Um, and, you know, those goals can be different for each situation. I think it'd be good to take a break here. And when we come back, we can um, talk more broadly about the co-op uh, scene in the United States to put one term to it and, you know, what we can take from it uh, more broadly. We'll be back.
You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined again by Noah. Again, hi, y'all. And Drew. Hello. Uh, on our first segment, we talked about Drew's experience of forming a co-op with uh, his co-workers at, was, at what was once Misfit Donuts and is now Anyone's Cafe. And then we had another great discussion about uh, other co-ops that have had success in recent years in uh, Rhode Island and New York City. And thanks to the magic of technology and the internet, a lot of that didn't get recorded. So we're going to, you know, try and recapture the magic of that conversation. We're going to make all the same jokes, say all the same ideas, and it'll be just as good as last time. You won't know the difference. If certain com- this would have never happened if certain companies were co-ops. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we'll have to get on that. Yes. Uh, I, I guess the first place to start this segment, uh, again, will be... Um, Discussing this article I came across in In These Times in preparation for this episode, uh, it's from May of last year. It's written by Harry August. The headline is, when these workers unionized, their cafe was put up for sale, so they bought it. And um, naturally, that stood out to me as being uh, particularly similar to your story, Drew. Um, This is a story about a white electric cafe in Rhode Island, and um, I have to know you know what caught your eye about this article given those similarities drew um yeah so i think that there are a lot of similarities in what they went through um i didn't learn about a white electric until after the fact um after we started our process and somebody was like oh hey did you know about them it's like oh look somebody doing trying to do the same that we same thing that we did um so that's i think it's really cool that um that Obviously, we're not the only ones. Um, we've got common experiences with people elsewhere, and yeah, it's, it's really it is really incredible what they've been able to do. Obviously, there are differences. Um, they actually converted um, an existing business, whereas we had to shut down and re- and formulate a new business. Um, but it's still, I think, the the process of unionizing. Um, to buying, yeah, to starting a co-op, I think is a very, it's a path that I'd like to see more of, um, to be honest. Yeah. Now, um, the sort of threat of, you know, shutting the place down or selling to new ownership if unionization takes place is a pretty common anti-union tactic. It's, you know, you see those sorts of threats come around during uh, unionization talks and, uh, you know, conversations like those that are happening at, at Starbucks around the country. I doubt Starbucks is going to shut down, but, you know, they may well threaten to close certain locations if need be. Um, that, you know, companies like to say that nothing's off the table once you unionize. You know, they like to leave open the uh, implied uh, threat of you could all lose your jobs. Um, and something that I was reminded of in you know, seeing this story and uh, yours, Drew, is 
a few years back, the uh, Labour Party in the United Kingdom, which at the time was being led by Jeremy Corbyn, had as part of its uh, platform it, as a party, one of the things was uh, what was called right to own, which would have given workers at companies the right of first refusal to uh, buy companies, not just when they closed, but when they were put up for sale at to the market, which obviously there are big obstacles in workers, you know, obtaining the money that it costs to buy a company, but it would be something that would have made um, paths like this maybe a lot simpler. Absolutely. I think that the right to own or um, the tenants unions are currently working on and and succeeded in places of a tenant opportunity to purchase act, um, which is a similar uh, concept. Um, And how they've been the they've been successful in that regard. I think it would be ve- I think it would be very helpful. Um, and this is actually one of the things that I think that you, uh, the unions can actually play a big role in is that while it's un- unfortunately um, it's not likely that we're going to see government action in this regard um, anytime soon. Though we should obviously ask for it, demand it. Um, I think that I think this is a good um, thing. It's an opportunity for the unions to put this into the con- their contracts, uh, which would actually help convert a lot of co-ops are like are really small. Um, we're we're six people. Um, White Electric was a handful of people, um, and it, and I think having the unions utilize this strategy would be a good way to convert lots some larger businesses as well. It has been done in places like um, New Year, New Era Windows um, in Chicago is a good example. So I think what's what particularly strikes me about the story is uh, we're talking about not just the or I'm thinking about not just the the role that unions can play uh, for for um, helping workers navigate this process, but. I, to be fair, I'm not familiar with the legalities of this because labor law is kind of a horror show in this country, but straight up funding these efforts because what struck me about the story was that so that the business sold for half a million dollars, they had to put down a down payment of about 55,000, if I remember correctly. And they, you know, they used their unionization efforts. I think Drew, you said that's the first time we did this segment. Um, to to raise a good portion of that through you know the increased presence on social media and 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 all of that, and what strikes me about that is that we've talked on this show before about how one of the things that companies love to do, including companies with progressive veneers like No Evil Foods and things like that, they love to say, well, if a union comes in, then you know, not just you might lose your job, but they say, well, it's not us. We don't really have anything against unions, but, you know, customers might not like it or investors might not like it or something like that. And in this case, the fact that White Electric, that the workers were able to buy the business by appealing to the community, by asking for that money, tells you that guys like Mike Wolianski, which was the No Evil Foods guy and the Monster Sink guy, and all of these other CEO types, I think, I mean, I, I don't think they're wrong that investors aren't going to like it, but I think they're wrong that there's no place for that in real life because they don't, well, they, they're CEOs. They don't really hang out with any normal people anymore. 
And, you know, the, these workers are showing that there is actually an appetite, especially in something that's direct to consumer, like a coffee shop would be, to know who you're, know where you're getting your coffee, know where you're getting, you know, your, your, your food and your drink and all these things and, and interact with that as part of your community. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think that's all well put. Um, something that strikes me about this article, and I'm going to end up quoting directly from it, is uh, we talked a bit in the first segment, at least I think we do, it was a couple of days ago now, um, about the idea that unions can be a tool to solve a lot of problems, not just simply you know wages and benefits and the things that people typically might associate with the union and labor battles. Um, and in the case of white electric coffee here, it was, you know, a question of racial justice. To quote from the article, these white electric workers started organizing soon after the murder of George Floyd in May 2020. They sent a letter to owner Thomas Tupin with demands to go beyond slogans and window dressing in achieving racial justice at the cafe. The letter, which was signed by 39 current and former staff, called for Tupin to hire more people of color, enroll in anti-oppression training, increase wages, and make the cafe wheelchair accessible, among other demands. Quote, they weren't actually things we thought would happen, says Chloe Chessang, 44, who has worked at White Electric for 16 years, even before Tupin bought it in 2006. They were dreams, but they are fully all happening now. Um, and so there you have a real concrete example of, you know, you know, a union responding to things that are happening outside of the workplace, a union taking, you know, all of that into account in their organizing. Yeah, I think that we, it, it's, a, it's a good reminder that economics um, is not just about um, the flow of capital, um, it's about whether or not labor um, is receiving what it needs. And we need to think broader than the, the money sometimes. Um, and that's actually one of the, the, the nice um, interactions that unions can have with co-ops is that co-ops tend to have those values baked into their models. Um, there's a set of cooperative principles um, Rochdale um, is the Rochdale principles um, for if anybody wants to do further research. Um, one of them is care for community. So the, it's a it's a business model that some, some people will talk about like the triple bottom line or like some corporations are set up as B Corps. Um, but the co-ops also have this like, because, because they're democratically managed um, and community um, focused, they're able to do things um, that are, that move beyond that pure economic um, factor, those pure economic factors. Um, so as I said, one, one of the principles is care for communities. So in the co-op world, you will, there is it's just as much about provide, creating justice uh, for our communities as it is about paying ourselves. Yeah. Um, Noah, you, you mentioned to me that uh, in our original conversation of this, one of the uh, perhaps uh, more notable co-ops that we neglected to mention is uh, one called Defector, which um, rose uh, in the media sphere from a similar situation. Uh, these were employees of Deadspin who all walked out 
owing to uh, issues they had with that site's management at the time. And within a year had formed a site in another sports website that was now cooperatively owned and um, cooperatively managed. And um, they found, you know, success, at least they've been around for a year and a half or so now. They made a profit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But Drew, when you talk about, you know, having interest beyond the economic, this is on a smaller scale, maybe than, uh, you know, racial justice or some of these more laudable goals. But one of the things Defector has set out to is say, we're not going to have annoying ads. You know, we're not going to bombard our readers with spam and things that make it hard to read our articles. You know, it's even if those things might make us more money, they the, there's value in not doing them. And that's worth pursuing, too. I, I want to just add a note here that I think one of the other cool things about the factor is the fact that well, so one of the things that we talk about when we talk about, you know, new media or media such as it exists in the current world, right? Everything is getting bought out by Alden Capital or, uh, I don't know, um, one of these other pool firms, you know, and it's, and it's all these billionaires owning everything and so on and making it impossible to get anything approaching actual news or actual, you know, coverage of anything from any standpoint that's not bought out by some rich person. So, you know, very much a return to the late 19th century conception of, you know, newspapers and journalism. But Defector sort of shows that you can be successful not doing that. And sure, they're not, you know, a media empire that spans, you know, three continents. They don't have a Paris bureau. They don't have, uh, they're not flying people out to cover a bunch of events at a time and anything like that. But they, they are building a business, building in the way that people say you're supposed to build them. And showing that you, I, I think there's power in showing that there's an alternative model at all, that there is something that can hang with all of the other players while still being, um, I guess the word I'm looking for is kind of organic. You know, it, it's, it's a business that is built on subscriptions. It's built on good writing. And it's built on, frankly, having personalities that people already want to read. Um, but, you know, they're, they're expanding their staff. They're looking at uh, what else they can do. And they're able to do that because they are taking very careful steps. So it's just nice to see that that's working in, a, in, in something other than, you know, restaurants or factories or whatnot. That it's working in an industry where people say it can't. Right. Yeah. Co-ops um, are present in virtually any industry that you can think of. Um, I'm not familiar with Defector, but I also, I, but I'm aware of Means TV um, is a, I would just imagine is a similar um, model and cutting through the capitalist uh, media uh, is very important and returning the voice to the workers, I think is the way to do that. One of the things Defector talks about is that, you know, it's possible to build something sustainable with uh, if you aren't focused on the endless need for exponential growth, which is, you know, a goal of so many uh, media empires and so many uh, would-be uh, media moguls that, you know, has seen sites that were perfectly fine and even turning a profit, nevertheless shudder because they weren't 
turning enough profit to make the people upstairs happy. There's, it's never enough for capital. And sort of similarly in my mind, there's a a quote in another article we read um, from Fast Company, which focuses on the Drivers Cooperative in New York City, which is trying to build a cooperative alternative to Uber and Lyft. And uh, Eric Foreman, who is one of the uh, founders of this cooperative, talks about how they have a chance to profit even on a smaller scale, because unlike companies like Uber and Lyft, they aren't spending, you know, X amount of money trying to swing legislation in their favor. Uh, Uber and Lyft famously are spending, you know, untold millions to try and get laws like Prop 22 in California on the books that would, you know, effectively um, justify the uh, employment structures they have carved out for themselves, uh, which is right now sitting in the middle of a lot of questionable territory. Um, To quote from this article, if you're not trying to bankroll an assault on workers' rights in the United States, it turns out you save a lot of money. Um, And so here again, we have an example of, you know, setting your sights smaller and, you know, having a better ethos about things than just trying to maximize profits. There are benefits to that too. I can't believe you stole my joke. That was, <laughs> that was mine the first time around, but no, in, in all seriousness, I love that quote. Um, and I love that the guy's name is Eric Foreman, by the way, but I love that quote because it tells you what Uber and Lyft actually are. I mean, we, we've said that they don't consider themselves transportation companies. We know that. But they, they think of themselves as tech companies, and they are also not tech companies, and they are also not transportation companies. What they are is a shell for essentially the assault of workers' rights. And the, these are uh, shells that are staffed by, you know, like ex-Obama secretaries of transportation and like relatives of Kamala Harris and so on. And I think it's important to know what the Drivers Collective is doing, because as somebody like I've been to other countries. Somehow it's impossible to make that not sound like a brag. Um, but I've seen places that have phone apps and websites and things like that that allow you to reserve a taxi. Like it doesn't have to be Uber or Lyft. It doesn't have to be one of these like horrible, horrible places and companies. It can be a taxi company, which I'm sure have their own problems as employers. But it doesn't have to be the way that we do it here. And it was kind of refreshing because the drivers collected by, by focusing a little bit of effort on making sure that they were still user-friendly enough and could reach customers enough. Foreman points out in that quote, I think it's something like, there's like 400,000 daily rides in New York City. And if they can just get like 1,500 of them, they essentially break even to make a profit. So they don't even need that big a share with the current operating costs that they have and because they're not spending ridiculous amounts of money on trying to destroy what's left of the labor law landscape they're even closer to doing that so it 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 really does seem that if you're it, it it almost seems like trying to be good as a company might cost less than we've been told how interesting yeah People don't like to talk about that, but increasing wages increases um, 
employee loyalty, it, it increases stability. Um, reducing worker turnover, turnover is a huge cost. Worker turnover is a huge cost of business. And if you can, and if you can eliminate that um, by just paying people more, um, then you've got a huge advantage. Um, and it, it's actually interesting that there's there's evidence there's evidence in that um, cooperative startups actually are more likely to succeed. Um, the number most most small businesses don't last past five years, um, and the statistics on co-ops actually far exceed that. I don't know the exact exact numbers off the top of my head, but um, so again, prioritizing workers in the business um, does, it leads to success. Now we can say these things that you know if you are nice to your workers, they, there will be less turnover, more productivity. You'll be more successful in the long run. But then that raises an obvious question of if all these things are good for business, why don't businesses do them? Not to steal the thunder of people preparing an answer, but I, I think the answer is that those in charge have interests other than just the bottom line. You know, we talk about them as though they're, you know, cold and calculating about turning a profit. But what matters more to them, more even than turning a profit, is having control over the company and not ceding that control to workers who are either unionized or you know, sharing in the business in some way. Yeah, I think I think the control that um, we often talk about um, in economic democracy. Um, why, not that we have political democracy in this country, but if, um, as a principle, that's something that generally everybody, um, that most people think is a good thing, even if it's not actually happening. Um, but why do why do when we go into our workplace do then we do we then submit to a an authoritarian business structure, and co-ops unions um, are also a form of work, of workplace democracy, just in a different form. It, it it helps create a broader base of control um, that can only benefit everyone. Yeah, I I think we're going to end this segment on that note, and um, hopefully all the recordings will go through, and you know everything will be good on that end. And when we come back, we're going to wrap up this episode with a, a discussion of, you know, what a better future for co-ops and for workers might look like. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And <laughs> Drew. Yep, I'm still here. In our first segment, which we recorded a couple of days ago, we talked about uh, Drew's experience uh, forming a co-op with his coworkers and, uh, you know, building something out of a shuttered cafe here in Rochester. And then just now we discussed, um, you know, other places that have turned to the co-op model and some of the success they've had in using that model and, you know, trying to envision alternatives than 
just a single singular focus on profit. You know, giving workers power, it turns out, has benefits. Here in this last segment, I want to take some time to sort of think about what the co-op model and co-op movement look like going forward. Um, and this is a question I posed to you back on Saturday, Drew. Um, you know, what would have made the process for you at anyone's cafe easier in terms of forming a co-op and, you know, getting this model off the ground? Because, um, you know, from how you've talked about it, you haven't talked so much about, you know, the struggles and obstacles, but I know they were there. Yeah, I think that well, one of the biggest pieces, of course, is education. Um, I think that in a lot of cases, the reason that this isn't happening is just because people don't, people are brainwashed into thinking that the economy has to work a certain way and they haven't considered the alternatives. Um, if our boss had really thought about it more, uh, maybe she would have decided to sell us the existing business as it was, but she was operating under a different mindset and shut the business down instead. Um, and there is a there is a growing trend um, for businesses to sell to their workers. Um, companies like Bob's Red Mill um, was owned by Bob. Uh, <laughs> and when he retired, he decided to transfer ownership. And I think, yeah, it's again, I think it's just a, it's a matter of making sure people understand that there are, that there are alternatives to the way we do business and that they, all the work that they've put into, put into it there's a in this in this front there's a little bit of, of um, massaging the egos of small business owners uh, but it, it, that is one um, one possible path um, there is if there are already businesses they've, they they've succeeded they would just succeed even more if they were owned by the workers uh, something we touched on a bit in the last segment is uh, the idea of a right to ownership which would enable uh, you know, workers at a business, if that place is going out of business or going up for sale, those workers would have the right of first refusal to buy the company. Is that something that you think uh, would have helped? That would have, um, it definitely would have helped. Again, it would have, um, with the correct um, educational piece to that, it would have been a more obvious option. Um, and I think there is also a, because um, even with the best of intentions, um, there are definitely business owners that are just not going to be down. So having um, having something in place, whether it's through legal requirement or, as I was saying before, whether it's um, inserted into the union contract um, or however it's done, that the right to buy, the right to buy your buy your workplace. Need has to happen because we need to. We need more. We we need more businesses like this, and we have to do we have to do things differently. Uh, in Italy, uh, they've actually managed. It's actually tied into their unemployment system. I think there's a there's a little bit of the right to buy involved, but also starting new co-ops is also is also part of the models that they actually. 
uh, you're allowed to use your unemployment money to start up a new co-op, um, which has been very successful um, in in that regard. They have a they're they're probably besides Mondragon in, in Spain is like one of the big biggest models, um, but the Italian it's it's harder to look at the Italian model and be like, oh, this is huge because they're all like little bitty separate co-ops. But when you look at the, the network, it is it it is just as long just as large as the, the Basque, the, the Mondragon model. Uh, what I'm reading here is it's called uh, Macora's Law, and um, over the last few decades has resulted in 257 new employee-owned firms, which, like you're saying, that seems small, you know, even in a country on Italy's scale, which is 40, 50 million people or so. That might be an understatement. Please do not check my math on that. Um, you know. It's only a few hundred places, but that's a few hundred more than might otherwise exist. And, you know, that's a good thing. That's, you know, a few hundred more than we have seen in the U.S. over that time, you know, through at least this legal method. Um, what other obstacles can you think of, Drew, that, you know, it might have helped to have some sort of um, recourse or way around that um, come to your mind? So one of the biggest obstacles um, in regards to co-ops is obviously financing. Um, we've talked a little bit about that already, but um, one of the biggest obstacles is because the conventional model is based on personal sole ownership of businesses, um, a lot of banks um, are not set up to actually like they can't they can't even it's not even a possibility for them to loan the money um they require most business loans and, and including some of the uh, loans from the small business administration require a personal guarantee um on the loan when you're dealing but that puts all the weight on one worker and in many cases, there isn't anyone that has the has the credit score or the personal assets to guarantee a loan like that. Um, so that so and there's no way in most cases there's no way for um, the co-op to collectively like obviously a bunch like ten people with bad credit scores still have a much if you make that if you spread that risk out um it's not as big of a deal but the the system just isn't set up correctly um to allow for that um that's what the one of the one of the factors involved in seed commons um which is the collective fund I, I don't know what i think they called them i think they call themselves a shared wealth cooperative um, but basically they provide they do provide loans without that need for a personal guarantee um, and that's actually how we got our funding um, and it's been very helpful without without that piece we wouldn't be where we are um, but we that fund is only is not nearly as large as it needs to be um, to really push this along. 
seems to me like that might be something that could be addressed by, say, you know, a public banking system. Uh, uh, I know there's been talk in Rochester of, you know, exploring what that might look like for the city of Rochester if you know, banking was under public democratic control. Um, that, that may be a subject for another week, though. For, for this week, we have, um, I think, run out of time. Um, I'm Ryan. I'm Drew. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.